Welcome to Mason Institute Investigates, a podcast series produced by the Mason Institute funded by the Edinburgh Law School. In each episode, we investigate current national and global issues involving ethics, law and policy in health, medicine and the life sciences. Hello and welcome back to another episode on Mason Institute Investigates. Today I'm joined by Professor McHale and Dr. Laura Nojlopi from the University of Birmingham to talk about their work on the COVID-19 easement on adult social care provision. Welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Leila. Would you like to introduce yourselves and tell us what interested you about the after effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on adult social care provision? Thank you very much. So I'm Jean McHale. And I'm Laura Nosloppy. And our project itself, uh, Removing Rights from the Vulnerable, the impact of COVID-19 social care easements. It's been an ERCRC-funded COVID-19 rapid response project that was running from November 2020 until July last year itself. And our project, as the title suggests, looks at the impact of amendments to the Care Act 2014, consequent upon the Coronavirus Act, and how those impacts played out in the West Midlands. So your project examined the relationship between the existing and emergency legislation around adult social care provision. So first of all, did the Care Act adequately support or facilitate the proper delivery of adult social care services prior to the pandemic? The Care Act 2014 is rooted in the what's called a wellbeing principle, and that's very broad and flexible in scope. So there was a degree of manoeuvre in relation to provision of services under the original legislation. As well as that, there was the case that adult social care provision was already under what were very severe pressures, free pandemic. We'd had an era and indeed a decade pretty well by that stage of austerity. And this had cut into service provision on the ground. And our stakeholders essentially told us really was the case as therefore that the COVID pandemic and the crisis of that were really effectively amplifying what were existing problems in the strict system. That's right. And we find that even on the ground, social workers report finding the Care Act quite tricky to implement in, in many cases because there are tensions built in between their priority of providing a strengths-based approach and the assessment criteria for meeting eligibility in the citizens that they're assessing. So there's a tension between seeking the strengths of the citizens and if they prove to have too many of these, of course, it weakens their eligibility for support and care provision. So there are tensions built in as well as flexibilities. I am not familiar with the term easements and according to your initial report, there is also an issue with using the term. What are easements and why is it a problematic term? So It's actually a really strange choice of terminology. I mean, the concept of easements itself, certainly in English land law, is, is very, very familiar. It's a term used to describe such things as, you know, rights of way. But the actual terminology of easements was built into pre-COVID pandemic flu planning exercises going back actually for quite a few years. The idea of effectively, you know, easing the legislation, changing existing provisions as well. And therefore, though it is essentially a problematic term in terms of really what and how people actually understood what this meant and indeed how it could be implemented. 
That's right. A lot of our interviewees during the research expressed uh, surprise and puzzlement because it wasn't a term that they had ever heard about in their professional lives. And I gather there was much discussion in professional networks discussing what indeed they might actually mean and where the terminology had come from. I should add as well that the easements themselves in the guidance that was provided were designed to be only used as a last resort and activated only when they were absolutely necessary to relieve strain on workforce capacity, which of course, you know, many workers, local authority workers, social workers, medical workers were falling sick or had caring responsibilities or were being redeployed elsewhere in the system during the peaks, the early peaks of the pandemic. What was the subsequent impact of the Coronavirus Act and how did it affect the CARE Act on adult social care? So what happened was that when the Coronavirus Act itself was enacted, it included provisions to essentially address the impact of the pandemic on adult social care. And those were put in in sections 15 and schedule 12 of the Act itself. And this was modifying you know, the actual 2014 Care Act. And that this was also working alongside guidance that was produced for local authorities. And also there's an ethical framework that was developed by the Department of Health and Social Care and also the Chief Social Worker Office. Now, there were various duties under, that could be paused or withdrawn under the easements and that local authorities did not have to comply with existing duties regarding assessing adults' needs for care and support or assessing carers' needs for care and support or duties to provide written records of assessments, etc. Also as well, they didn't have to comply with duties to determine whether people's needs met eligibility criteria, for example, under Section 13 of the Care Act. They could still go ahead and make, undertake these assessments and determinations if they thought it was appropriate to do so, but they didn't have to. And the same sort of approach was taken in relation to assessment of resources and of charging. So they weren't required to comply with duties regarding assessment of financial resources under Section 17 of the Care Act. So if they provided services during this you know, coronavirus emergency period under the sort of relevant Care Act provisions, and previously they would have been entitled to charge for them, but they decided not to undertake that assessment, then how it was going to work is that they could subsequently undertake an assessment and make a retrospective charge so they didn't have to assess charging costs at the start. They could actually then come back to that later. Also, there are duties in relation to meeting needs in relation to care and support in the Act. And these apply to individuals and carers under Sections 18 and Section 20 of the Care Act. Now, those duties were modified. So it didn't mean that they were removed, but it said that the threshold in relation to those were to be met when the authority considered it was necessary. And that was to meet those needs for the purpose of avoiding the breach of the adults' convention rights. So here we were talking about the rights under the European Convention of the Human Rights as incorporated into domestic law under the Human Rights Act itself. So those human rights provisions still remained in place. But the question really is whether these were an effective ceiling in terms of protection. And as Brian Sloan has noted, that there are, in fact, of course, considerable practical difficulties in these types of situations of, of bringing human rights challenges, as, as cases such as McDonald's in the UK you know, have highlighted. Now, essentially, really, these were designed as very much last resort measures and ultimately as well temporary. And they were also addressed in the guidance themselves in, in various stages. Yes, the issue of stages is really crucial here because in terms of practical implementation and the decision making surrounding that, social services directors 
had to look at a sort of threshold or tipping point at which the, this last resort measure would be activated, as it were. The guidance suggested that there were four stages or levels of business. In the first stage, stage one was business as usual, in which the full pre-amendment Care Act duties would be met as usual. And if we think back to the start of the pandemic in 2020, you know, nothing was really running as usual. So this was not often seen that things were running as usual. Stage two was applying limited flexibilities, which were provided for within the pre-amendment Care Act. So those are the built-in flexibilities that we spoke about earlier, which allow discretionary powers to councils and to social work departments to fulfil their duties, but in a variety of flexible ways that they consider appropriate to particular cases. So that's still, to an extent, operating as usual. Stage three, which was the first level of notifiable Care Act easement, was defined in terms of applying easements as provided for in the Coronavirus Act to the extent of, quote, streamlining some services. And at this tipping point at stage three, a local authority would have had to formally notify the Department of Health and Social Care via an email. There was a simple email address that they had to email across this notification. Stage four, which was the highest possible level of Care Act easement, was applying them to the extent of a whole system prioritisation, which would in effect mean reducing the care and support for one individual so that another's higher care or support needs could be met. This is in effect a form of rationing, I suppose, and this was the area that, that caused the most alarm to campaigners who objected to this emergency legislation. It's also uh, important to note here that the provisions of the Coronavirus Act 2020 that we're looking at are applicable in relation to England, though some of the broader lessons for social care and the challenges which social care faced during this period, we suggest are maybe of help and relevance to those looking at the position in other parts of the UK. So there is a lot of overlap between different bodies and roles in the healthcare sector. What bodies were responsible for implementing these easements or emergency changes to adult social care provision? Were their roles clearly delineated? In terms of being responsible for implementing Care Act easements or emergency changes to social care provision, that role would fall to local authorities or councils because they have the statutory responsibility towards their citizens who are eligible for care and support as defined under the Care Act. So it was the staff of those departments, like social workers and support workers and occupational therapists, who would have had to implement any emergency changes. In terms of who decided whether or not to activate the Care Act easements, that responsibility would have been split usually between the Director of Adult Social Services and the Principal Social Worker within any given council. The easements legislation itself was handed down, though, from the Department of Health and Social Care and was drafted jointly with the Office of the Chief Social Worker. How did you carry out your research? What is unique about West Midlands? So in terms of the first question, it was a socio-legal study. So we had primarily a qualitative approach. We did a broad review of the primary and secondary literature, such as it was, given that the pandemic was a new experience for everybody. And we focused particularly on the grey literature. So publicly available minutes of council meetings, of government documents, rapidly changing information that was provided on websites um, with information about coronavirus and changes in the law and how they might affect people. Importantly, we also undertook a series of semi-structured interviews with key stakeholders um, at both local and national level to understand their experience of receiving these directives from government. 
how they had understood them and how they'd attempted to implement them while still maintaining services for their citizens in many cases. And we also interviewed other stakeholders from campaign groups and charities and care organisations on the ground at regional level. Moving on to the second part of your question about what's unique about the West Midlands, it is a very demographically diverse region, so it's not really all that easy to generalise about the area. Notably, it has some pockets of deprivation, including some of the poorest communities in the country. And with this kind of level of poverty and deprivation come health inequalities. And they had some of the poorest outlooks with regard to health and socioeconomic outcomes relating to COVID itself. But there are also some very wealthy pockets. From the perspective of our research, the uniqueness of the West Midlands was this kind of anomalous cluster of neighbouring local authorities who had each declared the use of Care Act easements. And we were curious to explore why this cluster had happened and whether it was some kind of joint action and decision, whether it was a proportionate response to particular local conditions, or whether it was just somehow coincidental that five of the eight councils nationwide that had activated, formally activated, Care Act easements happened to be neighbouring councils in the West Midlands. And that's a a really key point, actually, that that very few councils nationwide did activate the Care Act easements formally, and most of those were in the West Midlands. Was the implementation of easements consistent across West Midlands? So first of all, in terms of the actual implementation of easements and consistency around it, one of the things that became very obvious from the research was the different approaches taken to the actual interpretation of the term easements itself within the guidance. I mean, how the guidance itself worked was that easements related to the higher level stages under the guidance, which had to be formally notified to the Department of Health and Social Care. And in terms of formal easements, at those higher level easements across the country, there were very few local authorities that actually did implement them. And that's one of the things that's really quite interesting about the West Midlands, because there, there are actually five local authorities which did implement them. And the actual implementation period, and it's fascinating when you go back and look actually really as well and reflect on it, was only for a very short period of time. So you've got Solihull kicking off on the 8th of April in 2020. And then the following day, you've got Warwickson and Staffordshire activating easements. Now, they're activating them at different stages. The most high level was Solihull of stage four. You've got Warwickshire with stage three easements and Staffordshire on the ninth coming in. And then you've got Birmingham on the 14th with stage three. And then Coventry on the 28th of April with stage three. And then you've also got the switch off of the easements itself. And you see, you've got Birmingham, who stopped using easements on the 18th of May. Following from that, Warwickshire, who are reverting to stage two of the guidance on the 23rd of May. Following on from that, Coventry and Staffordshire, who are both standing down from stage three on the 27th of May. And finally, Solly Hull, who, and it's interesting terminology there, returning to full compliance with the Care Act on the 30th of June. So they're the latest But it's still really a very short period of time. And quite a bit of that relates to as well. These were things that were very, very controversial. They were controversial in the West Midlands. They were controversial in the rest of the country. And there's a considerable backdrop in terms of the approach taken to these and the campaigning itself really around that. 
The broader issue in terms of consistency really is what happened where outside these authorities and indeed what happened in these authorities once they formally stopped operating easements. To what extent did things really therefore revert back actually to normal or were we in a a different situation despite that? I mean, we looked at a whole range of council documentation minutes from health and wellbeing boards and other council bodies generally, trying to you know piece together what actually happened, even in those councils where no formal declaration itself was made. And what was notable across the local authorities in the West Midlands in terms of the changes to provision and delivery of service was they really were quite similar amongst those who'd formally declared they were using easements and those that fell into the other categories. Yes, it really is. I agree, Jean. Very notable that there were similarities across the three groups of local authorities that we identified. Because to backtrack a little bit, councils tended to be discussed in terms of easement or non-easement councils. And the more we dug into the data, the more we realised that it wasn't quite as straightforward as that. And there were councils that had formally declared Care Act easements councils which seem to fall into a kind of grey area of saying they were operating at level two or stage two easements or not easements and the language became blurry and rather grey at that point as to what they were doing and another group that declared that they were not operating Care Act easements at all but when you dug down into the detail of what they were implementing on the ground level they were doing all sorts of adjustments and changes that were very very similar to those councils which were formally operating at the higher end of the easement protocol. So it raised a lot of questions about how this guidance and this legislation had been interpreted and implemented at the council level, because it was such a diverse approach. There was no real consistency between councils or or systematic approach to implementing the guidance. What was really, really notable, though, was the pushback received by those councils who formally and publicly did declare that they were operating Care Act easements. And those that did were listed without much further information on the CQC website as easements councils, effectively. And those were targeted with lots of freedom of information requests from various campaign groups and lobbying organisations and local questions as well, asking quite detailed questions about implementation and impacts and how people were being affected on the ground. And Through the interviews, quite some distress was expressed about the level of this negative attention and how that played out in the press as well. So I think there was some regret that certain councils that thought perhaps they were following the letter of the law by implementing and openly, transparently activating the Care Act easements felt that it was regrettable that they then experienced all this negative pushback particularly at a time when they had so much extra work to do and felt they were under really intense pressure in other ways. In terms of consistency, I think another point that came out of the research was that there was relatively little communication or support forthcoming from the Department of Health and Social Care down to those top teams, a local authority level that was consistent across the board. So they were trying to make these decisions at regional level effectively. To add to the sort of confusion in some areas, some of the things that on the ground might have appeared to be easement type changes were in fact public health measures. But it was a very blurred line, even amongst the language of those making decisions. So things like general social distancing rules, which would, of course, affect daycare centres and face-to-face contact with health and care professionals. There was some confusion about whether these were easements-based changes or whether they were actually related to the Public Health England guidance and changes in the law there. 
So yes, it was very complicated to find out the reasoning and the rationale for these decisions at council level. What about the public's expectations of adult social care delivery in the pandemic? We found there was relatively little data gathered about public expectations during the pandemic. It's notoriously difficult to gather this sort of information at the best of times. It's usually done by means of surveys and various charities and advocacy groups conducted such surveys online, of course, in the first two years, well, throughout 2020, 2021. And all of these revealed that services received had decreased to some degree in their availability and or quality during the first and in many cases, subsequent waves of COVID, as reported by citizens and people using services. Daycare services and respite were particularly badly hit. And these are crucial to avoiding carer burnout in many cases. And some of these, in fact, most of these stopped entirely at certain points in 2020. And some of them never reopened. Certainly they hadn't in 2021 or even in some cases 2022 or today. Many social work teams worked almost entirely remotely throughout this period. And this, of course, changed the quality of care that the public received or not the quality of care necessarily, but the quality of support and contact that they received. And this had a detrimental impact on Care Act assessments, safeguarding checks and other interventions that social workers would usually do face to face. And many care homes and providers were in crisis also. And through the shifting rules around visiting, even though those were more public health related than easements related, this obviously impacted on the well-being of both residents and their families. What we do know from the campaign groups is that there was a strong expectation that care should be delivered closely as possible with business as usual model. Although I think from the reports from the ombudsman, for example, suggest that levels of complaint dropped. So perhaps expectations had dropped or gone into a lull during those early months as well. One of the outcomes of the implementation of Care Act easements and the broader changes during the pandemic for adult social care was the moving online and the transference to remote access technology in the sector. And this extended to social workers, social work teams in particular, who almost from one day to the next moved their whole office set up to home offices and started using Teams for the first time. And this has proven to have many benefits, but also many pitfalls. Concerns have been raised about the move from face-to-face -face interactions relating to loss of access, which has an impact on safeguarding capacity, on a lack of contact, which is really important in good social work, to building relationships and trust and to counter social isolation, and indeed about the accuracy and effectiveness of the assessments undertaken, because social workers often report needing to have that real 360 and multi-sensory experience of meeting citizens, particularly in their own homes, to understand what is really going on in their lives. And this is starting to return somewhat partially to normal, but there have been significant changes to working practices, which it looks like they'll continue long after people have forgotten all about those early months of the pandemic. I think there's a sense in which a lot of different groups and social care staff as well are thinking about the new normal, because effectively, 
The health advice has been rolled back to business as usual, more or less. And there are scars left behind, really, from the impacts of those early months and years of the pandemic. They remain concerned that there's a risk that services and provisions that were paused, reduced or stopped during peak pandemic times may not return to normal and the provision and rights may be rolled back in future because they wonder whether this coronavirus act will have set a precedent really for these adjustments and reductions to become the new normal. And these are real concerns that need to be addressed by local authorities to the Department of Health and Social Care going forward. Interestingly, many service users declined home visits from carers and other health professionals during the first year of the pandemic. This was due to fears around infection and social contact. And there was less care and support available, but at the same time, there was a real fear of receiving it. So many families cancelled the services that they were pre-pandemic receiving. This obviously distorted the figures somewhat, and they would have had to restart those at a later stage. There was also an initial drop in the number of formal complaints made to local authorities and to health and social care ombudsmen, although these began to pick up again after the initial shock of the pandemic had settled a little bit. People said as well, it was so difficult to make contact with social services departments during this period because phone lines were no longer using, everything went through portals and websites, so there were accessibility issues there as well. But notably, in the end, while the ombudsman recognised that the easements were a potential issue, they were cited in only a very few of the cases that were upheld in the end. So it's very hard to measure the expectations on delivery of care. What were the key lessons to be learned from the West Midlands experience of COVID-19 easements in adult social care? Well, I think there's a range of things really, aren't there? And I mean, one of them is on the positive side, in a way, I mean, some things that came out again from our our respondents was what can actually happen when there is positive working relationships and when councils, communities and third sector organisations come together. And there certainly was, you know, again, findings from the stakeholders that communities, as we said, effectively, the broadest sense, you know, were pulling together in the crisis, really, you know, building trust in creative responses. It's, I mean, it's a question of the ability to actually cut through red tape and the extent to which enhanced discretion was given to people on the ground in terms of you know, being able to divert resources and whatever. And also that building trust is related, in effect, creative responses as well. The broader question, of course, is how those sort of relationships could be maintained and built on as well. And as we said really right at the start, adult social care is an area that is under severe pressure. And the COVID pandemic has amplified those existing pressures. And there are essentially serious concerns here that unless this whole funding model is reframed, then the legacy of COVID itself potentially could be a a problematic one. There's ongoing debate as to the way in which, say, genuine co-production could be involved in rethinking and reforming social care. There are, of course, broader debates about social care funding itself going on at the moment. Something as well that really came out, I think, was the question of understanding of what was actually happening, both in terms of the legislation and in terms of the related guidance around that. And this also goes to the question of the nature and extent, really, of understanding of the principles, both of the Care Act and of the Human Rights Act at professional level. There was certainly a lack of, well, consistency and the considerable diversity and interpretation approaches in relation to application of guidance and the related legislation as well. And I think more generally, the lessons here are 
in terms of how you ensure that people do understand what the law says, what it means, and actually how it should be operated on a day-to-day basis as well. In your initial report, you mentioned that insufficient weight was placed on gathering and recording detailed data. Why did this happen and how did it affect your research findings? We were initially quite surprised and rather dismayed by the paucity of data gathered regarding people in receipt of social care and support provision. There was a similar paucity of data gathered about the actions of local authorities and care providers in terms of logging their decision-making processes and kind of public explanations of any changes they were making and the potential impacts of these. Certainly there weren't, we didn't see many risk assessments for changes that were being made. And on the one hand, this could be understandable in terms of the climate of panic in some cases at the time in, in the early months of 2020. But really it is part of the job is accountability and logging such decisions and changes. We still don't really understand exactly why this happens other than poor planning, and that's pre-pandemic planning, and a focus on the more immediate worries at the start of the pandemic. The Department for Health and Social Care initially gave the duty of data gathering to the CQC, that's the Care Quality Commission. And in the end, the names of those few councils who had formally declared that the use of Care Act easements were listed on the CQC website. And this was the only information really provided on the CQC website about Care Act easements beyond a few lines. So it offered no start or end dates for the activation and no explanation of what stage or, or type of easement or change had been implemented. And this, of course, raised public concern and also wasn't very popular with those councils who had followed the official procedure and then found themselves named in that way on the website. There's an umbrella social care organisation called TLAP, which is Think Local, Act Personal. They were also given some data gathering duties slightly later than the CQC. But despite connections with a large number of key organisations and charities and local authorities, Their reports on the impacts of COVID and the easements on service users and citizens also note the paucity of data. So it was very difficult to get hard information about the impacts as they had played out. ADAS, which is the Association of Directors of Adult Social Services, similarly noted the paucity of data collection. Although they were directly involved in the development of the easement strategy back in 2018, And very few of the individual councils across England publicly shared their data on the impact of COVID or of easements, whether or not they'd formally activated them. And Jean and I had to dig really quite deeply into the databases of council websites to find information contained within the minutes of meetings of various sorts. It really was quite a forensic (laughs) exercise trying to find information We thought that the lack of foresight and prioritisation of data gathering was striking, actually. And with hindsight, we know that many social services departments were already in a slightly chaotic state and were overstretched and struggling before the pandemic struck. By March or April, the focus seemed to be purely on providing services and basic care for those most in need by any means possible in many cases. And that's really where the flexibilities came into play. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, some specialist charities such as MenCap, Age UK, carried out surveys, and these reflected a drop in the level and quality of care available to disabled and older people during the first waves. But these surveys themselves um, rely on self-selecting respondents, and it's quite difficult still to build up an accurate picture. The ONS, notably, has done a pretty good job of collecting data throughout, 
and tracked all kinds of COVID-related data since the start. Yes, so basically we've had to piece the information together to get some picture of the overall impacts. There was a concern that the vulnerable were having their rights removed through such easements. Was this concern justified and what can be done to protect the vulnerable? I mean, this concern was raised at the very outset, as as soon as campaign groups had eyes on the legislation, even before it came into law. The initial briefings on the imminent Coronavirus Act elicited a strong response from organisations like Liberty and Inclusion London, Disability Rights UK and others. They all immediately saw what they perceived as a threat to the rights and well-being of older and disabled people. What they saw was at their most extreme, the Care Act easements would allow local authorities to withdraw and ration out care and services. And this naturally caused alarm and anger in some quarters. To respond to the second part of your question, I think that the language of vulnerability is often rejected, actually, by these groups. But in the case of COVID, in that context, it was clear that some people found themselves to be in a more precarious and vulnerable situation than others. And these, quote, more vulnerable people included those who are deemed clinically vulnerable to the virus from a medical point of view, which often especially included older people and those with certain illnesses or disabilities, as well as those who rely on care services and support to function and remain safe and dignified in their daily lives. They were disproportionately affected. And the legislation does go some way to protecting citizens. But we saw that there was already so much flexibility and discretionary powers built into the Care Act of 2014 that it's clear that the protection of people's rights can really only be assured at ground level, at the local level. And that would be through the ethos and decision making of social workers and their managers who kind of are in control of decisions made, conversations had and the funding, the way that that's distributed, their ability and capacity To do this effectively, though, rests with the Department of Health and Social Care and central government, ultimately, who make the national level decisions about policy and funding, because without proper funding, it's very difficult indeed to protect people who find themselves in a vulnerable position. I mean, I think many of these problems really are things that have been happening during the pandemic that were already happening routinely before COVID itself, and COVID was exacerbating things. And and in many respects, the Coronavirus Act itself could provide legitimacy for changes. And I think one of the interesting things in a way is that period after the Act provisions were not utilised, that looking back over what happened and in terms of the concerns as well, there is that need, I think, to reflect on what the legacy is of the pandemic. And we saw that from some of our interviewees. I mean, one of the principal social workers in one of the authorities where they didn't implement easements had indicated that, quote, my worry is because people manage without support, there's a view that people can just survive without it. And people were, again, as the quote says, really worried about review of their assessment saying, well, actually, you didn't need that. Therefore, that's not a need anymore. The fact that they managed to cope, inverted commas, survive inverted commas during that period would mean that perhaps going forward they wouldn't necessarily need things. There was concerns about the level of communication, concerns about, again, as as Laura was saying earlier, about why things were cancelled and what was the justification for it and what was public health concerns, what was the actual act itself. And this did come up, actually, concerns around a sort of chilling effect, really, ultimately, of all these things on provision and expectation as well, that I think does remain a concern for service users and also for health professionals and carers and others, too, going forward. This was a very profound discussion of your research on the impact of emergency legislation on adult social care delivery. 
Thank you both very much for coming onto the podcast to discuss with me your work. Very many thanks, Leila. Thank you, Leila. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it. For further information, check out the links in the show notes of this episode. If you are interested in contributing to the podcast, we want to hear from you. Get in touch through social media or by emailing us. See you next time.